Today's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is he not this carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The word of the Lord. All right, so if someone is about to say something uh, offensive to you, how do they normally preface that statement? No offense, no offense, but thank you, Henry. No, no offense, but kind of smell funny or, you know, not you. You smell wonderful. Uh, 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 yes, yeah, you smell wonderful. Uh, no offense, you're stupid. No offense, you're ugly. No offense, you're boring. You know, it, it's like, for some reason, this, if you preface your statement with no offense, you have been absolved of the responsibility of offending the other person. And in fact, it's their problem if they're offended by, by what you say. And you know, there are all kinds of tricks of the trade and different nuances of phraseology you can use with all due respect. That's a good one. You know, that sounds a little more high-minded with all due respect. Uh, you know, don't, please don't take this the wrong way. But uh, you know, these are uh, well-earned and learned tricks of the trade when it comes to offending people while trying to make it sound like you're actually doing the opposite. And so this morning, um, we get to see how Jesus offends people. And we also get to see what offends Jesus. And lastly, we, we learn what Scripture has to teach us about how to take offense. So Jesus offending people, what offends Jesus, how we're to take offense. So first, let's look at our, our passage for the offensiveness of Jesus. And so what we see in this passage is that Jesus offended people in his hometown in Nazareth. Uh, it says it right there in verse 3 that the people took offense at Jesus. And you do not need to be a Greek scholar or even have taken one second of, of New Testament Greek to, uh, to, to understand this word that gets used for offense. It's uh, scandalizo, scandal, scandalized. Uh, and, and so the people were, they were scandalized by Jesus. It's also a word that gets translated as a stumbling block, something that gets you all tripped up, can't get over it. And so this is in spite of the fact, actually, so Jesus offends the people, and this is in spite of the fact that he really actually went out of his way. Jesus seemed to go out of his way when he went to Nazareth, you know, kind of this, you know, we might think it's a local boy makes good story, but it's not. He went out of his way to come back to town the right way, because, you know, he left. Seems like he just left as the carpenter, but he came back, and here's this person who has now built a name and a, and a reputation and a following at this point, so how are you going to go back home? 
Go back to your hometown uh, after all these things have changed in your life. So, so Jesus tries to do it the right way, you know? Here he's got this great reputation as a teacher and rabbi, so he brings his disciples with him. You know, this is what you're expected to do. Bring, bring, bring the people who are learning with you. That shows that you're, you're, you're legit, you're a legit rabbi. And, you know, he didn't just go start running his mouth on the street corner of the town square. He waited till the Sabbath. He waited till, till the synagogue. He, he waited till the right time to get up and, and speak. And, and so Jesus, the way he, he comported himself, he was not trying to offend anyone. That wasn't his point. He wasn't doing that. There's a funny um, headline from the uh, satirical website, the, the Babylon Bee, with, with, that reads this way. Man unsure if he's persecuted because he's a Christian or because he's a massive jerk. Jesus denied that problem. He was not trying to be a massive jerk. He was not going out of his way to tick people off, to sort of push, push, push their buttons. And yet he did. Even though he went out of his way, he wasn't trying to offend him, he did offend them. Why? That's really a crucial question, I think, in understanding this whole passage. Why did he offend people, even if he wasn't trying to? And, and so look at what it says in our passage that leads up to the people taking a, a offense. And so it's after he teaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense in him. So what offended them? Jesus' wisdom? That he did mighty works? I mean, really, that's it. That, that's what they found offensive. It wasn't that his words were blasphemous or hurtful or incendiary or heretical. No, it says that they were wise. Where did he get this wisdom? They were wise words. They recognized that. And it's not that his mighty works were like hurting people. Exactly the opposite. They were healing people. They were helping people. So why? Why would Jesus' wise words and his mighty works, why would those offend people in his hometown? How does that make sense? How is that possible? And the key, though, is in, is in these words. It says, is this not the carpenter, the, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph, Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So what offended them was that someone so familiar and who seemed to them to just be so ordinary that, that, that he would have such wisdom and be capable of such Mighty deeds and their words, they, they drip with contempt. In effect, they're saying, can you believe this guy? This guy? Who does he think he is? And so it's actually not the extraordinary words and works of Jesus that offended them so much as his familiarity, their over-familiarity with him and the ordinariness, seeming ordinariness of Jesus and the gospel. Now, especially for us uh, who have grown up in, in the church, this can still be offensive, the familiarity we have with Jesus and the gospel and, and the ordinariness of all these things. It, it can be offensive to us. And, and even people who haven't grown up in the church, the kind of Christian message can be offensive just at its core because, you know, though uh, you haven't grown up in, in the church, maybe in our, in our culture, it's to what uh, Flannery O'Connor, um, the, the Southern Catholic author of the middle of the 20th century, she, she called it a, a, a Christ-haunted culture. She said the South, she was talking about the South specifically, but I think it applies to the whole country. She said, the South isn't Christ-centered, it's Christ-haunted. 
Same is true of, I think, American culture writ large. So much of our understanding of, you know, what's right and what's wrong is, is, is it's haunted by Christian ethics and, and, and Christian memory and Christian stories. And, and so the ghosts of Christianity, they're everywhere. They're all around us, even if we refuse to acknowledge their presence. And so the old saying is true, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Or to put it in Jesus' words, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. We can become so familiar with the gospel that we're almost inoculated against its power. And, and we've heard the story so many times before that it's almost like we, we no longer are able to, to hear them. And it's not even that we no longer hear them, but we actually can begin to resent them. That was one of the the claims of uh, G.K. Chesterton in his book, The Everlasting Man, which we spent over a year at Chestertonians reading. It was a slog. Uh, um, uh, Aaron Dice is not here. He's the one who made us pick that one out. And so he hasn't shown, no, he's shown his face again, but, but he's back. But he said, let's pick the everlasting man because and he had a good reason for doing it, a very defensible reason for doing it. C.S. Lewis, um, when he was you know, talking about his own conversion, his own adult conversion to Christianity, he um, gave pride of place to the everlasting man. He said that this was the book that baptized my intellect. You know, gave me a Christian intellect. So you read that, you go, all right. You, we, 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 if it's good enough for C.S. Lewis, it's good enough for us. And there were some real gems in this book. But one of the great themes when you read Chesterton is actually his desire for, for people to see the familiar as if it's unfamiliar. You know, he says the greatest adventure in the world would be to, you know, go out. I mean, he thinks of England, so this island, you know, you go out in the seas and you're going to discover some, you know, faraway country, some great adventure. And actually, unbeknownst to you, when you, the new country, when you sail out and you discover something, you actually have discovered your hometown, your homeland. Right? So, so, so the challenge and the beauty of seeing, um, seeing what's familiar like it's unfamiliar again. And, and so when Chesterton's writing The Everlasting Man, one of his goals, it was to make Christianity unfamiliar again to you know, these early 20th century British people, especially the kind of cultural elites, the cultured despisers of Christianity who had become so familiar with it that they can no longer see it for what it was really, really was. They can no longer hear the gospel for what it really was. They had become you know, prejudiced against it. They'd heard it all before. And Chesterton said, now, the best relation to our spiritual home is to be near enough to love it. But the next best is to be far enough away not to hate it. It's my contention that while the best judge of Christianity is a Christian, the next best judge would be something more like a Confucian, right? Someone for whom the whole thought system of Christianity is completely strange. The worst judge of all is the man now most ready with his judgments, the ill-educated Christian turning gradually into the ill-tempered agnostic, entangled in the end of a feud of which he never understood the beginning, blighted with a sort of hereditary boredom with he knows not what, and already weary of hearing what he has never heard. He does not judge Christianity as calmly as a Confucian would. He does not judge it as he would judge Confucianism. He cannot by any effort of fancy set the church thousands of miles away in the strange skies of mourning in the morning, and judge it as impartially as he would judge a pagoda. It's said that the great St. Francis Xavier, who was a missionary, a Catholic missionary uh, to China, 
who, who very nearly succeeded in setting up the church in China as a tower overtopping all pagodas, that he failed partly because his followers were accused by their fellow missionaries of representing the 12 apostles with the garb or attributes of the Chinese. This is something also, too, incidentally, uh, Matteo Ricci, who was a, a, um, a, uh, a missionary to Japan, uh, depicted, you know, the Christian story and Jesus in, 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 you know, as if they were Japanese, and this was very offensive to some of the fellow European missionaries. And Chesterton says, but it would be far better to see them, the apostles, as Chinese and judge them fairly as Chinese than to see them as featureless idols merely made to be battered by iconoclasts. It would be better to see the whole thing as a remote foreign cult, its pastoral staves as the sticks twisted like serpents carried in some foreign procession, to see the prayer book as fantastic as the prayer wheel, and the cross as crooked as the swastika. That's the you know, Eastern religious symbol, not, not the Nazi symbol. Then at least we should not lose our temper as some of the skeptical critics seem to lose their temper, not to mention their wits. Compared with that, it would be better to see the whole thing as something belonging to another continent or to another planet. It would be better to walk past a church as if it were a pagoda than to stand permanently in the porch, impotent either to go inside and help or to go outside and forget. For those in whom a mere reaction has become an obsession, I do seriously recommend the imaginative effort of conceiving of the 12 apostles as Chinese. In other words, I recommend these critics to try to do as much justice to the Christian saints as if they were pagan sages. And when we do make this imaginative effort to see the whole thing from the outside, we find that it really looks like what is traditionally said about it inside. It's exactly when the boy gets far enough off to see the giant that he sees that he really really is a giant. It is exactly when we do at last see the Christian church afar under those clear and level eastern skies that we really see it as the church of Christ. To put it shortly, the moment we are really impartial about it, we know why people are partial to it. Now, I love that because it speaks to this, this... sense of the, the danger of an over-familiarity with Jesus and the gospel. And that really, when, it's only when we see Jesus as, as an outsider would that we can appreciate him as an insider would. And it's only when we hear the gospel as, as strange, as news, good news, news being something novel, something new, something fresh, that it, when, it's only when it's strange that it can become familiar to us. And so one of the the challenges then for the church in the 21st century is to make Christianity strange again, right? To keep Christianity weird. That's a challenge for us, you know, believers too, an amazing grace. You know, there's that great verse where it says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Well, that grace is just as precious 10,000 hours later, 10,000 years later as the hour you first believed. But familiarity can make us forget that. It can blind us to the truth and it can actually make us contemptuous of it. You know, we've been there, we've done that, we've heard it all before, we've seen it all before. We get jaded and cynical. So not only does the, the, the familiarity of Jesus offend, so does his ordinariness. The people of Nazareth, they know him. He's Mary's son. 
He's the local carpenter, which means that, you know, he's made their chairs and their tables and he's helped them build their houses and, you know, their plows and the yokes for their oxen. They know him. And you know, surely they think if this was someone extraordinary, he wouldn't be so ordinary. And so too, it's the ordinariness of Christianity and Christ. It offends. It's so ordinary. It's so basic. It's so simple. You know, this great claim, how, you know, how, how, how are you saved? And, and the Christian answer is, uh, you know, by grace through faith, right? There's no secret knowledge you need, no uh, trust, tests and trials you have to go through, uh, no elaborate rituals, rituals, you know, nope, saved and justified by faith. You know, what do you need to do? What, what, what do you have to do? Nothing, right? It's been done for us. That's grace. You know, it can't be that simple, can it? can't be that ordinary, can it? It's like uh, the Old Testament story of Naaman. Naaman, the Syrian general, who shows up, he hears about this, you know, great Elijah, this great prophet that's in Israel. He has leprosy. He goes, how can I be healed? Elijah doesn't even go meet him. He just says, go wash yourself in the, you know, go wash yourself in the Jordan River. You know, just go do that. And, he go, and Naaman is offended. He says, aren't there better rivers in Syria than this dirty little muddy river you're going to have me go wash myself in? It's too simple for him. It's too offensive. He's a great person. In order for him to experience a great healing, he thinks he has to do something great. And the, and the, and the message of Christianity is no. No. It's not that complicated. And, and you know, the, the, the savior of the universe, we go, well, he, he's a Jewish carpenter. You know that the God of the universe entered history as that person, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, a man with a hometown that we know, and a family, a mother, and brothers, and sisters, a regular old occupation. And so we're offended not just by the ordinariness of Jesus, but, but really the particularity of it all. Jesus isn't noble, he's not rich, he's not successful, he's not a conqueror, he has no pedigree. You know, that's the scandal of, of the ordinary particularity of the incarnation. You know, you might think, well, it sounds cool. You know, God became flesh. In the abstract, that sounds kind of cool and impressive. You know, we could even appreciate that. But you say, well, no, no, God became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. The carpenter. Mary's son. This particular seemingly ordinary human being. That's an insanely offensive claim unless it's true. I love what one commentator says on the, the offensiveness of Jesus' ordinariness. He says, the servant image of the son, it's too prosaic to garner credulity. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold him, too closely with Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus the son of God. Humanity wants something other than what God gives greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, in only the son of Mary. That's why Jesus offends. Too familiar, too ordinary. But now I want us to look at what offends Jesus. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that Jesus was offended by the people of Nazareth, not as explicitly as, as it says that he offended them, but I think it's implicit within the text. It's a clear implication of this passage. You know, Jesus says to them, well, okay, the response is they get offended to him. He says, well, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And so their lack of faith, it shocked Jesus. He couldn't understand it. It offended him. He had just stilled a storm. He had just cast out a legion of demons, healed a woman with a 12-year hemorrhage, raised a little girl back to life. His reputation preceded him. The people of Nazareth, they had had a firsthand you know, encounter with his wisdom, the wisdom of his teaching and his preaching about the kingdom of God and expounding the scriptures. And yet they had no faith. So they had a firsthand knowledge of Jesus. They had a firsthand encounter with him, but they had no faith in him. And that's what offends Jesus. And because of that, they don't get to experience his power. Though I love how when Mark says, you know, Jesus could do no mighty work there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. So, you know, <laughs> which for most of us, that would be enough. And, and, and so these people even have a firsthand experience with Jesus' power, and yet they still have no faith. And so here then is the danger that we have in offending Jesus, that we will have Jesus around us, that we'll know him, you know, by name and by reputation, even hear his words and see what he's doing out in the world, but we won't believe in him, and so we won't get to truly experience God's power, his power. It's in a special danger for the church. Right? It tells us that we can hang around Jesus without actually having faith in him. And if we don't have faith in him, we won't be able to have any part in what he's actually doing in the world. And so lest, let us be wary of ever becoming an unbelieving congregation. You know, because we can add all the programs that we want. And, and we can have all of these, you know, amazing do-gooding initiatives. Great, you know, great, great stuff. Like what we're doing in the basement with the Center of Belonging. That's exciting. And it's actually in the Southwest Journal. Uh, there's an article about it, uh, your most recent Southwest Journal. You know, that's a great initiative. That's awesome. We're proud of that, excited about that, excited about what that's going to do, you know, for God's reputation um, and, and people here in this community. But, you know, we can be studying the Bible, have all these great life groups, studying scripture, but it, it, you know, we can do all this kind of stuff, this churchy, Christian-y stuff. We can slap Jesus' name on it, but without actual faith in Christ and in his power, you know, nothing is going to come of it. So let us not offend Jesus by having him around us without actually ever letting him into our hearts. All right, so we've seen the offensiveness of Jesus, what offends Jesus, but I want to lastly very quickly talk about what this passage teaches us about how to take offense, or rather how to go on offense. I'm, you know, being punny uh, here. Because in response to, you know, people being offended by him and him being offended by their lack of faith, Jesus' response is to descend his disciples out on offense. You know, notice that Jesus' reaction uh, to rejection is not what we would think of maybe our own reaction to rejection, it, you know, anger or maybe retreat or withdrawal. He, he says, no, he says, I'm not going to withdraw from the world. I'm going to send my followers out into the world. And so to be a Christian isn't to be someone who, who just pulls back, who retreats, but instead to, to use the parlance of our day, you know, it's to be someone who leans in, leans into the world. And you know, what's fascinating is that when Jesus sends out the disciples, he, he doesn't give them a lot of instructions here. In fact, it's, it's more about what not to bring than what to bring, and it's more about, you know, where to stay than what to say. And so this should tell us that as, as followers of Christ, how we live in this world, how we interact with people, it's just as important as what we say, if, if not more so. So Jesus says, you know, here's what you don't bring. Don't bring, a, don't bring any bread. Don't bring a bag. Don't bring money. Don't bring two tunics. Just staff, sandals, one tunic. That's all you got. And so in other words, Jesus is, is telling 
his people that, you know, when, when you're on mission, travel lightly, simply, and in such a way that you are dependent, radically dependent upon God. And so missional effectiveness, effectiveness in engaging in the mission of God in the world, it depends on living simply. You know, more need means more greed. You know, what would you think of me if I showed up to church driving a Maserati? You probably think, where is he getting all this money from? What's wrong with him? I actually would talk to my, my boss in, in Ojai, and we would kind of joke, like, what's the nicest car a passer can drive before people start, like, raising their eyebrow? You know, that's a, good, that's, a good, that's a good question. That's a fair question. He drove a VW. So, you know, of course, that was very fair. You know, uh, that, was, that was below the bar. Uh, I think I'm safe. I got a Dodge Grand Caravan, so I feel good about that. 2005 Toyota Camry, 175,000 miles. I feel very safe on that. A BMW, you got to start having like a good story to tell about why you are able to drive this and you saved this car maybe from some type of situation or my, you know, uncle like didn't drive it anymore so he passed it on to me. And we really... We, Amy and I used to drive a PT cruiser and then we had a story to tell about like what are you doing in this car what's wrong with you is everything okay in your life like <laughs> why are you, what kind of choices are you making like that caused its own story to be told but anyways or you know what if I wore Gucci shoes like the preacher sneakers uh, Instagram account you know you'd start to ask questions or you know if I had some giant rope, gold rope chain around my neck or a vacation home in the Hamptons or a yacht on Lake Minnetonka I mean, you know, like Jesus is warning his followers, especially those of us um, engaged in, you know, professional ministry against being overly attached to material possessions because those become a hindrance to, you know, I think real relationships with people and, 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 and you know, the, the integrity, the credibility of the, of the gospel and how we live, those all belong together. They all go hand in hand. And so Jesus says, he sends them out, he says, you know, in this world, travel lightly, and he sends them out two by two, and we cannot miss that he sent them out. So Jesus is, you know, is not just trying to get people to come into the church, but he's sending his followers out into the world, you know, to, to be living real life, engaging with people in their real actual lives. And he sends them out two by two because, you know, it's not a lonely endeavor. We, we need each other for encouragement, support, accountability. And so the Christian life and Christian mission and ministry never, never should be a lonely endeavor. And we see when he sends them out, you know, there's kind of three components of what they do when they go to these places. They have this message of repentance. Uh, you know, they're driving out evil and they're comforting the sick. And so that's what it looks like to be a Christian on mission. And this message of repentance, you know, oh, that sounds negative. But we, we, we need to remember that this is Jesus' message all the way back from Mark chapter one. You know, he says, the time is near. The kingdom, the kingdom has come, repent and believe the good news. And so repentance is about more than saying you're a sinner, believe in Jesus. Repentance for Jesus is about changing your whole perspective, your whole worldview, your whole mind, so that now Jesus and God are at the center and Christ himself, it's the lenses through which you view reality in the world. That's what repentance is. And, and we see here, too, that this mission of teaching, it also includes what we would call ministries of compassion and meeting people's real, practical, actual needs. There's no reason to divide, in our understanding of mission, what Jesus has joined together. When we share the gospel, we do it in word, we do it in deed. And the last thing about going on, on offense, how to take offense, is that Jesus teaches us how to deal with rejection. It's coming, Jesus says. Rejection's coming. Uh, but, you know, don't fear it. Don't seek it out, but don't, but don't fear it. You know, if that happens, you know, get the, get, the, get the dirt off your feet. 
Or yeah, we could paraphrase it in our own world. You know, it's like, get that dirt off your shoulder. You know, Jay-Z said that. You know, or uh, helpful suggestion made after the first service. Taylor Swift, what did she say? Shake it off, shake it off. Oh, oh because the hater's going to hate, 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 hate. And the, whatever, you know, the rest of the, the, rest of the people are going to do all that. So dirt off your shoulder, shake it off. Yeah. And you go, well, that's easier said than done. This is true. This is true. So how do we, you know, how do we get the power to deal with rejection? Where, where, where does that come from? And it comes from this, that Jesus himself knew what he was talking about. He, you know, experienced not just rejection, I mean, he experienced a lot of rejection in his ministry, but, but you know, we look at the, the, the last week of his life, and, you know, here he is, he's, he's handed over, he's betrayed by someone very close to him. He's abandoned uh, by his friends, by, by these same 12 people he sent out into the world. He's, he's, he's just abandoned by them. And the crowds are given a choice, you know, Barabbas and, and, and Jesus. And, and the crowd cries out, give us Barabbas, crucify him. There's rejection. You, you, you want to know rejection, that's rejection. And on the cross, you know, even as he's being crucified, one thief says, you know, you saved others, save yourself. He's rejected by, by a thief. And, and, and Jesus cries out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know rejection? That's rejection. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He faced rejection so that we would know what it's like that we're accepted and that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And I close with these words from Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.